Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Nice to have you with us again, or in fact, welcome if this is the first time you've tuned into the podcast with myself, Kim, and this man, Phil. G'day. Who is about to share very Australian a little about the destination we're featuring in this episode, Belize, often referred to as the jewel in the heart of the Caribbean basin. It's on the northeastern coast of Central America. It's known for the Great Blue Hole, made famous by Jacques Cousteau, who declared at one of the top five scuba diving sites in the world. And he'd know, wouldn't he? Marijuana is legal if it's less than 10 grams. That's, that hole's probably not blue. That's <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> wow, well, look at the hole, man. And the country's most exotic exotic delicacy is the gibnut rodent, also known as the royal rat because it was once served to Queen Elizabeth. Do you reckon she knew? I reckon, I reckon you have to. I bet it, you've had guinea pigs, so I'm assuming royal rat would be the same. Yeah. Lots of bones and gristle, yeah. In this episode, we'll hear about a homestay in the remote south, learn more about a project to save the endangered scarlet macaw, and check in with the guys spreading the climate change message. But first, Alison is a California native gone rogue. She says she's avoiding adulting one country at a time. Yes, she's about to share her time in Belize with us and explain her site, Eternal Arrival. So Eternal Arrival is a travel blog with a focus on off-the-beaten-path destinations, so trying to counter mass tourism in some of the most impacted locations and re-channeling that into cities and countries that maybe don't get as much attention. It's a a big issue, isn't it, over-tourism? And we talk about it a lot on our podcast and then almost come away feeling guilty that we're you know, highlighting these spots that are off the, the beaten track and that aren't full of tourists. Do you, do you go through that? It is kind of, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because you want to promote these places and give locals the chance to make a tourism income because for so many of these countries, that can be really transformative. But then at the same time, I've gone back to places as they've gotten more touristic And I've kind of like been scowling and been like, oh gosh, now this place is getting ruined. And, you know, that's, that is a very sort of gatekeeping attitude to have. And it's like, I don't think that's necessarily the right feeling to have because, you know, um, everyone does have a right to experience destinations. So I think we, it's, you know, it's kind of silly to be frustrated with other people for doing the same thing that we are in traveling to these places. But at the same time, I think it's good to encourage traveling sort of with a wide view of the world and not just traveling to the most impacted cities, because that's really when it starts to have a so much of an impact on locals. Well said. And later in the podcast, we'll chat with someone who did a homestay in the south of Belize. In one of the articles or one of the blogs on your site, you talk about some of the unique things to do. So outside of perhaps catching the chicken bus to the south of Belize and having a homestay, what other unique things can you experience? Uh, there's so much that you can do. My favourite thing in Belize is the uh, ATM cave, and it's abbreviated that way because the name is super hard to pronounce, but I think it's Aktun Tunachil Muknal Cave. And um, it's a cave uh, kind of close to the border with Guatemala. If you were in San San Ignacio, it's a good place to base yourself for that. And uh, you can go inside the cave and it's 
quite dark. You have to swim and use your headlamp to go, uh, to go through everything because there's no lighting. And uh, after you kind of go about a couple hundred meters into the cave, you can climb up these rocks and see the remains of um, human sacrifices from the Mayan times and uh, remains of pottery and all sorts of things. So that's definitely, in my opinion, the most interesting thing in Belize to, to, for visitors to see. And then, of course, there's you can go cave tubing, uh, which is less extreme than the ATM cave. You can just sort of float in a, in a tube down rivers through these caves. Uh, you can go hiking in Pine Ridge. You can go see Mayan ruins at Caracol. And of course, there's the coast, there are the beaches, um, and then, you know, diving, snorkeling, that sort of thing as well. So this ATM cave, back to that, (laughs) you've said it's worth checking out. You do need to do it with a licensed guide. Um, Group numbers are limited. What's it actually, like, I would love to do something like that, but I I have... um, you know, several fears in life. <laughs> and one of them would be, you know, I'm happy to snorkel, but I like to see what's around me. So how far down do you have to go and how creepy does it feel? Yeah, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid of the dark and slightly claustrophobic. So I definitely can uh, relate to sort of being a little nervous about this. Um, so you're basically, it's when you're swimming, there's always a rope that you can hold onto and also you have headlamps so it's not completely dark. And then there are sections where you don't actually have to swim where you can just walk through the water, but in like along, you know, a, a shallow bit. So I would say that it's not extremely scary, but it is also quite, um, quite tense at certain points. And there's um, uh, a lot of really narrow parts and uh, that can be kind of challenging to make yourself uh, amp yourself up that you can fit through these extremely narrow bits but you'd be surprised that you can actually uh you know squeeze yourself through really small looking uh sections of the cave well that sounds like an amazing natural wonder i'm not sure the the signs of the sacrifices i think i've seen some photos on your page of skeletons Uh, so i can i could see myself emerging from the water and then immediately wanting my mum (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's it's a little creepy but I I don't know I found it super interesting and hearing the stories about who they thought these people were based on their skeletons and what they were able to basically just you know tell about the past from a couple bone fragments was incredibly interesting so it's very very worth it to go with a guide who well obviously you have to go with a guide but um it's very, you get a lot from the guide instead of their, you know, they can really tell you so much about the place. So it's creepy, but it's definitely so cool. Um, so is it, a, is it a great place for history lovers then? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's a really great alternative destination to learning about um, Mayan culture and seeing uh, the ruins. So uh, there are the largest Mayan ruins in Belize and Caracol. And there are hardly any tourists there at all, mostly because it's a bit of a pain to get to. This was on par with like Chichen Itza and it was incredibly beautiful. And you can actually climb the pyramids there there still because uh, it's in good enough shape. It it doesn't see enough tourists to where you can't climb uh, up the pyramid yet. 
And so uh, it's incredibly cool and really, really beautiful. And it's a great place to learn about history. So why would Belize be attractive to a world nomad? I think mostly just the diversity of what you can experience in such a small country. You can go diving and then by the evening you can be uh, practically at the border with Belize, staying in a jungle lodge, getting ready to go to the ATM cave the next day. So it's really great for um, travelers who don't have a ton of vacation time but want to see quite a bit in a limited amount of time. So I would say if you have a week to 10 days, you can see the country pretty extensively. Um, Of course, you could always come back and see more. But I think that it's really great because it's it's small, but it's extremely diverse in what you can see. Thank you, Alison. Now, from an insurance point of view, where does World Nomad stand with things like that cave diving? Okay, we cover caving in some – yes, mostly all policies will cover caving. So caving going into caving a cave? Caving going into a cave is fine. We also cover scuba diving, but we don't cover cavern diving, so, you know, scuba diving in a cave, the combination of two, far too dangerous, too risky, don't do it. Even if it's uh, not scuba and it's snorkelling? Nah, we don't do... Don't do it. Yep, don't okay. do cavern diving. You, sh- Whenever you're going to go on a trip, you should try and think of all the things that you know you'll be doing uh, and then go and check out the level of coverage that you need from your World Nomads policy and whether indeed we do actually cover it or not. Very easy to find on the worldnomads.com homepage. Go and find out about what we cover and what we don't. Too easy. We mentioned insurance. Does that mean we have to play? Yeah, we do. Here we go. This information is only a brief summary. Read the full policy wording very carefully. Visit worldnomads.com. That's all you need to do. General advice and it may not be right for you. Read the full policy, it really won't take long. It worldnomads.com. I love that. By the way, you cannot take cameras into the cave anymore because someone dropped one on one of the ancient skulls. Oh no. Now I referred to this next chat when speaking with Alison, and it's Jess's trip to the south of Belize and why she chose to jump on a chicken bus and do a homestay. Well, originally when I first kind of did my research about going to Belize, I hadn't I'd never been there before. It was my first time. Um, so I turned straight away to guidebooks and um online blogs to see to see what to expect and to help me plan my two-week trip there. And almost everything, everything talked about the north, um, the snorkeling, the blue hole obviously is, is really, really famous in Belize. Um, and I didn't really hear anything about the south at all. So that interested me. And then I kind of dug deeper to see if there was anything worth seeing in the south. And it was all very limited, the information basically. Um, So it wasn't until I got to Belize that I kind of was able to explore the South and it's very, very different to the North. You don't have any beaches. You, it's all mainly, the activities are mainland, um, inland, sorry. So you, you won't see much of the sea, but it's in the South where you get to do more of cultural um, side of Belize that you don't. Um, see as much when when you're in the Keys, for example. And a lady commented to you, a local, that you don't see many tourists in that area. (laughs) No. So 
the infrastructure in the south is um well there's just not a lot of infrastructure there so when there's not much infrastructure obviously there aren't as many tourists uh going there because the transport is quite difficult to get down there um there's lots of bumpy roads sometimes no roads at all and not that many um affordable hostels so for at the moment the south is mainly visited by the more intrepid traveler the one that wants to get off the beaten path so yeah as soon that was the first thing i was the only visitor at that time on that bus <laughs> and i did get a few stares and but everyone was just intrigued just wanted to know what i was doing there isn't that nice? We've heard of, heard of that in a couple of podcasts recently, Bangladesh in particular, just this lovely curiosity about why people are visiting. Yeah, definitely. And that's, you can definitely feel that in Belize that everyone's very, you know, at first, if you're new to traveling, you know, the stairs can be a bit off putting, but actually once you start talking to the locals, you realize that actually they're just, they're just intrigued. They want to know your story. They want to know what you're doing in, in their part of the world. So you were on this bus heading to a homestay. Tell us about that. Yeah, so I ended up getting a local bus uh, for, to Punta Gorda, which is the, the southernmost town in Belize. And then I got another, and it's all chicken buses in, in Belize. Um, so it can be a very bumpy ride, especially in the south when there's no tarmac roads. Um, so I ended up doing a couple of hours on that bus and then the bus actually stopped halfway through and made us all get off. I'm not actually sure why. I never found out why, but that was the end of the road for that bus that day. And I ended up having to hitchhike a four by four pickup truck that very luckily came past um, just like half an hour after me waiting. And that car very very kindly they took me to the village where I was gonna be spending the next few nights on a homestay. Were you worried you know there you are in an area where travellers don't normally visit and you're not kicked off a bus but you're forced to <laughs> try. Yeah. We, we... yeah my mum and my nan said the exact same thing like what are you doing <laughs> um but actually uh, I've I'd already spent, I've, I've spent almost two years in Latin America. So I'm, 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 although Belize, every country in Latin America is different, I did already feel quite comfortable. I'd been traveling uh, for a long time. And also anyone who's been to Belize probably agree with me on this point that you do feel very comfortable very quickly. Obviously they speak English there as well and everyone wants to help you. So in that particular instance, I didn't feel uncomfortable at all. It was mainly all families around me just doing their daily, daily routine from town back to home. So no, in that case, I felt pretty safe. Well, speaking of families, you arrived at where your, your home stay and you were greeted by a little little boy that asks if you're Jessica. So where does the story go from there? Yeah, so I'm kind of standing around very awkwardly. I've just been dropped off in this town. Um, there's not a lot around, just a few a few wooden wooden huts um, and not many people around. It was quite hot, so everyone was inside or by the river. Um, and suddenly this little boy, he's, he's kind of soaking wet. He's just run up from, from the river 
and and he says oh is, is your name Jessica and I said yes um and he he suddenly very excitedly just ran off and expected me I guess to follow him so I did I tried to keep up with him and we went through the town and he took me to what at the time I assumed was going to be my homestay and we went into his house and in there there was a lot of people in the house waiting for me. So, cause I had arrived a little bit late because of the whole thing with the bus. Um, so yeah, they were all there expecting me and, um, yeah, that's where it starts. So was this the house that you were staying in with all these people or were these just the neighbors that had come to, to welcome this? this yeah. So <laughs> the, um, the homestays in, in this part of Belize, how they work is, Instead of staying with one family, it kind of, it's shared out between, I mean, it's an extended family. The village, everyone knows each other anyway, whether they're cousins or equally just, just neighbours. It's all shared out. So that particular house is where I would eat lunch that day, um, but I actually stayed in several houses and all of them kind of pitched in because obviously resources there are quite um difficult to come by you know this is quite a a poor community so for them to host a guest they need to share share the burden as it were um so yeah uh that was where I would stay at first but I did move around to lots of different houses and what did you learn about the culture some of the traditions Lots. Um, mainly the, the part that I enjoyed the most was the cooking. Um, I'm really into food and cooking. So, and so are they, you know, the, the Mayans take a huge pride in their produce, in their cooking. Um, some of the traditions that they, they do, they practice in the kitchen, they actually haven't changed much um, since you know, since the ancient Maya were living here, you know, hundreds, but probably thousands of years ago here. So that was very interesting for me. We learned how to make tortillas by hand, which is actually a lot harder than I thought it was. Um, cause you have to, so they grow the corn themselves and you have to de-husk it by hand, which they, they were there for hours de-husking and it's quite painful on that, on your hands. So we did that for a few hours and then you hand grind that into a corn flour and then you can start actually making making those and they cook everything on an open fire that's actually inside the kitchen so it can get very very smoky in there and that's where they sleep as well obviously i'm guessing you would recommend <laughs> that, that someone uh, traveling to belize head south yeah i mean i would absolutely recommend it obviously you know, it's not, it's not for every type of traveler. If you're, if you're coming to Belize, uh, for a week of relaxation and a bit of luxury and the, and, and the blue seas, you know, all of that, that's kind of synonymous with Belize, then yeah, of course this, this might not be for you, but if you're interested in, um, having a cultural experience, uh, cultural experience that is really seems quite natural you know it doesn't doesn't feel put on because there aren't many tourists there yet so uh, for example I was the only one in the village at the time so I had you know the undivided attention of of the people there and they genuinely wanted to share their culture so if you're looking for an experience like that 
Um, and obviously, as I said before, they speak English. So this is a rare opportunity in Latin America to, to connect with people like that are different, have a completely different way of life to what you might be used to at home. So yeah, I would definitely, definitely recommend getting off the beaten track, making the, the bumpy journey. It's, it's definitely worth it. Thank you, Jess. There is a link to uh, that story in show notes. And FYI, Phil, did you know Belize has some, and this is FYI, very yeah. random, some weird folklore with one character known as El Sisimito, a dwarf with a thumb complex. <laughs> Apparently he doesn't have one, so he cuts off everyone else's. Oh, well, perhaps that's why <laughs> thumb locking is a form of a greeting in Belize. What? Yeah. It, well, it, what, you, know, you wrap thumbs? Or, yeah, a bit like that thing. I don't know if it's yeah, universal, but kids, one, two, three, three, four, three, I declare thumb. a thumb war. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, something like that. All right, I'm with Come it. on, okay, fun facts. <laughs> no, you got me on that one. <laughs> yeah. uh, look, here at World Numbers, we believe that as travellers, we have a responsibility to give Back. It's why we founded the Footprints program. When you buy travel insurance with us, you can choose to add a small donation to your policy, uh, just a couple of dollars, five dollars, to help fund a community development project. Now, one of the projects that you have funded, our travellers, is to save the endangered scarlet macaw in Belize. Raphael joins us to tell us about the project. Yeah, so we um, have been funded uh, to do and to implement uh a program for the protection of scarlet macaws, which is the biggest uh, of the pirates that are found here in Belize. So we should be implementing this project uh, over the next um, 10 to 12 months. Um, so in reality, we would be the implementer of such a project um, and enabling also to have a program of citizen science. In other words, volunteers uh, to be able to join and be a part of the protection of these birds. It is a spectacular looking bird. Yes, it is. Um, you know, for us, it is the emblematic species because of the richness that the jungles have. And you can see the colors of the parrot, which is the red, blue, yellow. Um, uh, you know, it is a magnificent, really, sight to see, uh, you know, particularly as you are standing uh, in a tower lookout, or if you are looking at, at the jungle from above, you can see the parrots actually flying over. And so, yeah, it is a very spectacular one. It's a very colorful one. It makes uh, quite, um, you know, sort of a loud, you know, sound out in the jungle. So, you know, for us, um, it is really the sort of the symbol of the Chiquimón jungles. So, why is it endangered then, Rafael? Um, you know, since the species was discovered as a subspecies, which is the Ara cyanoptera, um, it has been really under a small um, you know, number and population because of the limited habitat. And um, of course, destruction of the forest has been one of the key you know, threats to this species. And more recently, the problem of illegal wildlife trafficking has become much more prominent. In fact, even for us, um, you know, after doing this work for the last eight years, we have just realized that the extraction of these birds from our jungles is probably four or five times more than what we had anticipated. So it's really one of those, you know, threats that if we don't really put the right interventions, 
I think we're going to lose that species here from the jungles of Chiquibu. You're on the ground in Belize. Is there any way people can help? Yes, actually, the idea of citizen science is really the involvement of local people or people who are coming, um, you know, volunteering from other countries who can be able to participate um, in terms of what we call biological monitoring. So the idea is that the groups here, our rangers, our field personnel, they spend seven months, you know, starting from the month of February and going up to August of every year in terms of monitoring the parrots. Um, it's really more to provide a presence and to look after the nests and the fledglings. So, and so once the breeding season starts, we are already under that particular environment, under the trees, under the canopies, and looking after these birds, uh, you know, for that duration. So people who are in as volunteers, um, you know, we get from time to time people from other countries who would come in and spend one or two weeks with us, and they become a part of the, of, of the data collection process. Great. So how will you measure the success of the project? The project, I mean, the success is really by the number of fledglings that are able to to fly wild and free every year. So, you know, the, I mean, if we are able to protect, um, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 nests, and if then those fledglings are able to make it wild and free, you know, you know name it, you know, you know, 40 parrots or 50 parrots, I mean, that is really the success. Um, you know, once they leave the nests, uh, once they are safe out there, because you see the poaching activity, Kim, it occurs whenever the birds are on the nests. You know, once they are flying out, then of course it's difficult to capture them, but but they become very vulnerable as they are found, um, you know, as young chicks on their nests. And so the success for us is by having a presence, by having more people, you know, safeguarding these nests, then ultimately it means that more of those birds are going to make it to the wild. Well, best of luck with it and thrilled that World Nomads can be part of it, Raphael. Yes, certainly. I th- well, it's really the first time that we are getting... Uh, you know, this support, and so certainly we are really looking forward to it. Uh, I mean, this season for now, we are ready in um, in August, and so practically for this year, we already are closing down already the breeding season for this current year. So we have the months of planning. In fact, we are just needing to do now the t-shirts, the certificates for the program that will be starting in February of next year. So for the people who are hearing this message, um, they are still in a pretty much the chance of being able to be a part of this. So we still have some time for the planning process and we certainly look forward to putting the right interventions and of course to have a good results. Links in show notes to the project and on how you can volunteer in Belize when the breeding season begins. Phil, travel news. Okay, a bit of a danger one to start off with. The Philippines has declared a uh, epidemic as a number of dengue fever cases soars. 622 Two people have died since January and there have been 146,000 reported cases in just seven weeks. Can you immunise against dengue? No, nah, no, you can't. It's spread by mosquito. The 
bite of a particular type of mosquito and annoyingly it hangs around during the day, not just at dusk and sunrise like the other types of mosquitoes. So the only thing you can do is make sure that you, you know, put insect repellent on, good tropical strength and cover up. So if you're travelling around Philippines at this time of year, because, you know, it's dengue fever season, make sure that you wear long sleeves and long pants and... If you get to your accommodation and you see stagnant water lying around anywhere, tip it out. Yeah. So you can't get mosquitoes breeding. And, um, yeah, remember if you come back and you've got home and you've got flu-like symptoms, don't forget to tell your doctor that you've been in a uh, tropical location. All right, I've got a special announcement in travel news. Put the fork down. The obesity epidemic has forced airlines to increase the average weight they allocate to each passenger. <laughs> Of food? Yeah. Well, no, the weight of a passenger. Right, yeah. They, they haven't updated coming. these for about 30, 30 years. And, of course, we've all got a lot larger, fat, oh, yeah, fatter. Yeah, yeah. All right, so put the fork down. Um, an airline's biggest expense, of course, is fuel, and more weight means more fuel. And extra weight also means that a plane needs a longer runway to take off. So, mm-hmm. you know, you can't sort of go extending runways in lots of places because there's farmland and houses around and what have you. The average weight assigned to each passenger by the US uh, FAA is 200 pounds for men, 179 pounds for women, and 76 pounds for children under 13. This includes 16 pounds of carry-on luggage and averages out the weight of winter and summer clothing. So that's 184 pounds or 83 kilos for a man and 165 pounds or 75 kilos for a woman. I reckon if you weigh less than that, you should get a discount on your ticket because yeah. you're, you're using less fuel. So what happens if you do exceed those weights? Well, no, it's an average. Uh, one of the Australian airlines, uh, an offshoot of Virgin, has taken about 10, 15 pages out of its in-flight magazine. It saves 100 grams per magazine on board. But they reckon they're going to save hundreds of thousands of dollars in fuel costs over a year. And the other Australian international airline, Qantas, they recently, you know, the food trolleys that go up and down, they've recently replaced those with lighter versions so that they can cut back on weight and fuel costs. That's my travel news. All right. Thank you for that. A change of pace now as we share a conversation with Florian Reba, who gave up his corporate gig last year to embark on a cycling travel project documenting local impacts of climate change. Yes, so that was... uh... Um, uh, I was working as a consultant in a, uh, a, a consulting company faced, uh, 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 focused on climate change and sustainability. Um, Swiss company called South Pole, active a little bit around the world. I'm always confusing when you say you work for South Pole, but actually in Switzerland. Um, and uh, so I've been working in, uh, in sustainability for for like the last 12 years or so. And eventually I, I left. Um, uh, it's a bit of a, a funny story, but um, the trigger of it was a cycling accident I had uh, about a year ago. I uh, broke my shoulder, was on uh, medical leave and had like six weeks to do a little bit of thinking what I wanted to do. And I kind of felt that uh, desire to um, combine my passion for the outdoors with my work in sustainability and then like one thing led to another and all of a sudden I was biking uh, across the Alps. <laughs> that's, that's one way to help your shoulder recover. <laughs> Indeed, yeah, of course. I mean, there was a bit of a, a quite an intense summer of rehab before that. Uh, uh, really spend a lot of time um, with the physios uh, and in the gym and um, already like three months after surgery, um, the shoulder was good enough to go climbing some uh, peaks above 4,000 meters in the Alps. That was the test for it. And um, 
then cycling was more more of an effort for the legs more so than the shoulder so you embarked on this cycling travel project and you were documenting local impacts of climate change when you set off on your bike how did you intend to do that just by chatting to people yes indeed so um before um heading uh, heading off um i contacted a few people um that i researched or that i knew maybe also uh, and uh, we set up like interviews um in specific places at specific times and um so it was not only like just random conversations with people in the streets that i would like encounter on my travels but mostly like um organized meetings uh, interviews that i did while cycling and are you finding people, uh, you know, people in those sorts of positions have good documentation of what's happened? They, they've got a good record of how things have changed? Uh, sure. I mean, if you talk to a scientist, I mean, of course, I mean, uh, there is, a, you know, that's like their work. They have all the data. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but it's, I mean, I was looking more for, for, for stories and uh, I was also, uh, you know, some things you just like can't plan it and then uh, uh, things like just happen spontaneously. But it's, I was really more looking for like uh, uh, anecdotal stories and maybe stories also like all, older farmers or maybe also hear from what some like athletes that spend their time in the mountains are, are seeing. So it's not only, it's not primarily, let's say, the, the scientific facts and data that I was looking for, rather something a bit more like... Um, emotional that also speaks to like our identities and uh, empathy for nature well we love a good story so go on tell us some of the stories you heard well um so one thing i have maybe to uh, explain a little bit here but uh there were of course uh when i when i cycled in the alps i mean that happened after a huge drought last year in europe um, and a little bit all around the world and um all the all the uh, um, the soils were super dry, um, and then um, so that really really um, uh, impacted the work of farmers um, in um, in uh, in 2018 was struggling with access to water, um, and then of course at the end of October and the Alps were hit by a really massive storm, uh, huge rains, uh, lots of casualties um, in uh, in in Italy. Um, there were um, there was a lot of trees got raised um, in Italy, and those kind of like extreme weather events are really kind of typical for for climate change. So one of the really like sad um, impacts of that storm was that um, the uh, famous Stradivari forest, where um, uh, Stradivari already found his um, tone wood for the famous violins, um, they they're like about um, uh, almost entire forest is now gone. So that's a very precious wood um, which is gone. Um, and so those are kind of very like like violent impacts of climate change. But then um, what I actually really found fascinating was um, also the more like subtle uh, and um, slower impacts of climate change. So here's a story on that. Um, in the northern parts of, of Italy, and um, close to the borders um, with uh, Switzerland and, and Austria, um, the actually like the German-speaking part of Italy, um, there is a, a, a valley um, which is like um, sl- um, gently going up the hill. Um, uh, it's like a north-south directed valley, gets a lot of wind. Um, and because of climate change, because of the warming, um, farmers can now grow um, apples higher up in the valley, um, which is really good for their income. Um, but it has also like created um, social conflicts. Um, for once, because 
it's mostly like richer farmers from down in the valley that are like buying up the land. And uh, second, because um, the apple plantations, which are basically like, like a monoculture in that, in that valley, they use a lot of pesticides. And now um, people have started like mobilizing against um, the use of those pesticides. I've mentioned before the wind in that valley. Because of that wind, it's almost like impossible to avoid the, the pesticides that are being used. So um, that kind of impact of climate change because of the warming where you can like, now grow apples, it's good for the income of some, but it really also has some um, unintended consequences which people now start like mobilising against. Very interesting. Great project to do. How how would you rate that as a way of travel? I mean, because that's travel with a purpose, a very definite purpose. Mm-hmm. Would you recommend it as a way of travelling? If I would recommend it. Um, yeah. I would. Like, you know, go, having a really major project like that to, um, you know, drive your travels. Well, I definitely found it um, inspiring. Um, and personally, I was, it was a bit of a premise for me. Um, I did not just, I didn't feel inspired to just like go cycling or take some nicer photographs. Like I wanted to have a, a purpose to it. And personally, I would definitely recommend it because I think it's, uh, it's enriching. Um, I also um, met people that I would not normally meet in my daily or professional bubble. We are all living in our bubbles to some extent. Um, so that was um, a, a great opportunity. It was also a great learning um, opportunity for me. You've got to be open, right? You want to go talk with people. Um, and um, it, it, it also um, certainly um, uh, helped me like, see, well, yeah, you see the purpose of what you're doing. It's not only like pedaling um, every day. But uh, you want to share something with the world um, uh, based on, on your activities. And I think there, is, there are plenty of opportunities um, to um, combine traveling with, with purpose. And I actually think it's a, um, a very good way to inspire people um, to take like, sustainability action. Do you, do you have a, uh, an itinerary mapped out or a route mapped out? Because I'm just thinking some of the nomads listening to this now might, you know, want to offer help in some way or other if they know where you are and if they can contribute something or just, you know, have a chat. Yes, of course. I, I do have a, a full Excel mapped out with um, uh, my itinerary. Um, where I am on which day uh, and uh, how many miles uh, this will be from one uh, one uh, place to another. So it is, that's, I guess, the difference in between just going cycling and having a, a project. I actually have to plan that stuff. Well, thanks for chatting to us and, and good luck. Well, thank you, Kim and Phil. Great chatting to you. You can catch Florian on the road cycling from Livingston, Montana to Denver between now and August 22nd, obviously, if you're listening to this episode in uh, 2019. Further dates in show notes. Uh, look, according to figures from the uh, WTTC, the World Travel and Tourism Council, tourism in Belize makes up more than 38% of the country's total gross domestic product. And, of course, rising sea temperatures are affecting the coral reefs there and they're, because they're one of the biggest draw cards there for travellers. So there are are some obvious concerns about climate change. If you enjoyed this episode, you might like to listen to an early one featuring Guatemala. I had travelled overland from Mexico and Belize, and Guatemala felt like a warm hug. The mine culture is right there and evident. And so for people who travel with 
a want to understand the culture and to understand a different culture, it's right there in your face. And it's very different than the main Hispanic culture that's sort of across the region. It's just beautiful, too. So you get to hike through the highlands and it's an absolutely stunning country. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode featuring Belize. To get in touch with us, email podcast at World Nomads and listen to our episodes by grabbing them from wherever you get your favourite podcasts, then subscribe so that you don't miss any. Oh, rate and share and also a little bit of news. We've got our own podcast page now and it's on Facebook. It's simply World Nomads Podcast. Absolutely. Next week, an amazing nomad who travels the world seeking out conversations by talking to strangers. That sounds like me. A very funny guy who's just launched his own travel podcast. Hi. The World Nomads Podcast. Explore your boundaries.